Good morning. Special to be here with you all. I want to uh, start by telling you about a sermon that I listened to recently. Uh, this took place, um, well, I listened to it recently, but this sermon was preached about 27 years ago, almost exactly 27 years ago in nine days, and it was preached by my grandpa, Milton Hostetler, and it was the last sermon he ever preached. That sermon was preached on January 19, 1997, and it was preached at chapel, actually, and recorded by Robert Yoder, that would be Joe's dad. And uh, the title of his message was, well, he kind of went with, with two titles. Um, he, he referred to it as, Time is Running Out, or also referred to it as, Time is Swiftly Passing. So I listened to this sermon a few weeks ago, and it was really interesting to listen to this sermon and realize that he was going to be gone only a few weeks later. He died on March the 1st, which I believe his name is birthday, right? Do you remember that? Do you remember that he passed away on your birthday? Yeah. Yeah. So here are some of the things that Grandpa talked about in this sermon. He read from James 4 and reminded us that life is a vapor. And he said, time is short. We don't know what's going to happen in 1997. Why are we here? What is our purpose? And he quoted the psalm of life. Life is real and life is earnest. And he reminded us that multitudes are passing into eternity. And he talked about different uh, people who had already passed away. And some of you will recognize these names um, of of founding fathers of, of our church community, like the wrestlers, and he said the Zares, and Willis, and Edna, and Gwendolyn, and Alvi, and he referred to different community people that he had built houses for. He was a carpenter. He'd built a lot of houses in this community, and he said he could think of about 12 different houses that he built whose owners, one or both of them, had, had passed away since then. And uh, he also mentioned the recent funeral of his father-in-law, Grandpa Schwarzentruber. And I remember going to Delaware for that funeral. And I remember Grandpa brought along bananas. And a number of us young people, when we wanted a snack, were offered a banana and, and got a little tired of the bananas on the trip. It kind of turned into a joke. Um, I remember, uh, I'm sorry, he, he remembered that or he referred to how in the previous year, 1996, he had lost his wife, and that was a, a great sorrow to him. He said that 70 years old, the, the year when he, turned, when he was 70 years old, it felt to him, I'm getting this wrong, let me back up. He said that being 70 felt like yesterday. And he was probably, was he 86, 85? In my, in my mind, it's 86. He said, being 70 felt like yesterday. He said, you may not believe it, but it felt like yesterday. And he said, if you take that amount of time, the, the years that passed since yesterday, and add it to his current age, you reach a number that most people don't live to. And that was his way of saying 
that the, the time that he has left is going to feel like less than yesterday. He said, too many people live as though there is no end to time. And I don't think my grandpa lived that way. So, like he said, we, we didn't know what would happen in 1997. We didn't know that he would die a little over a month later. And even before that, Lydia passed away. We weren't expecting that, of course. So that all took place in 1997. There is an end to time, and after that, there is the judgment. I'm going to read from Hebrews 4, and then I'm going to read from Romans 14. Uh, Just a few verses here from Hebrews 4. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. Talking about the, the Israelites who were disobedient and didn't enter the promised land. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account, or the King James Version says, with whom we, must, with whom we have to do. Then in Romans 14, a couple verses here, 10 through 12. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us, will give an account of himself to God. So we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, believers and unbelievers. Every knee will bow. Every one will know that the Lord, he is God. And he is the final judge and the only judge that really matters. He's the one who has seen everything and he is the one with whom we have to do. So I want to spend a minute uh, imagining what it might be like to be the next person in line, although I don't know if there's going to be a line, but imagine what it might be like to be about ready to face God and to give an account to God. So God is high, and in this scene, God is high and lifted up on the throne, and that's, that's the part I can't imagine you know that it's soon going to be your turn to give an account to him. What will you be feeling? Will you be feeling fear? Now, God is so great and awesome, maybe, maybe all of us will feel some fear and trembling to some extent. Uh, will you be feeling confidence? 1 John chapter 4 talks about having confidence in the day of judgment. Peace. He is the God of peace. Is that not a possibility? What about dread? That would be a terrible place to be at. What will you be thinking about? You might be thinking about who else is here. I don't know if you can see the other people around you. 
Um, you might be thinking about who else went through this. People you care about, people you really don't care about that much, but maybe rubbed shoulders with. How did it go for them? I can almost guarantee that, that we will be thinking about the past. Uh, things, there'll be things we will regret, you know, foolish and selfish choices that, yeah, we wish we hadn't, we wish we hadn't done that hurt people. Opportunities that we let pass us by because they were too much trouble or felt like they cost too much. Things we chose to do even when we knew they weren't good for us spiritually. Those choices are going to feel really, really foolish on the judgment day. And, and the backdrop of this is realizing that everything is going to be exposed. All the hidden things are going to be brought to light before the only audience that matters. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. There'll never be a day on which we value the blood of Jesus as much as we will on this day. But there will be regrets too. There will also be things we'll be glad for. Uh, things that felt like sacrifices at the time, but as we're about to give an account to God, we wouldn't give them up for anything. The time that you turned around to go help out that stranded driver or the hitchhiker, or helped your neighbor with hay, or awkwardly told a stranger about the gospel, or had visitors over, over to your house even when your house was a wreck. Uh, these aren't big things. Maybe we won't think of them. But I imagine myself thinking of them and, and being glad for what, for what I did do and wishing I had done more. So the point of this message is, is to just kind of bring the end into focus and to say it's real, it's coming, we need to be ready. The, the point of this message is not to make us frantic or scared, but to make us sober and diligent. And maybe ask ourselves, what am I doing that I'm going to regret then? Or what am I not doing that I'm going to regret not doing? Now, before we keep going, just uh, I need to spend a, a second here explaining what I mean by judgment day. I'm using... Um, a pretty broad term here. I'm not talking about a specific event. I'm talking more about the concept of a final reckoning that we're all going to experience. And the reason I say that is because it's not clear to me if there's going to be one event or multiple. Uh, many people believe there's actually going to be a separate judgment for believers and for unbelievers. And I don't, I don't really have a strong opinion on that. I don't claim to have it figured out. I don't. But what people do agree on is that everyone is going to give an account and be rewarded or rebuked accordingly. Now, I feel like I need to show you that this concept of a judgment day or a day of reckoning is, gets a lot of emphasis in the Bible. In fact, God has always wanted his people to know that there are going to be serious consequences. If you, don't, if you don't choose my way, there's going to be serious consequences. You see that from Genesis, and you see that all the way up to Revelation. And Jesus talked often about the concept of final 
reckoning, judgment, and reward, probably more than we do. So I'm going to give you a high-speed tour of the book of Matthew, all right? Don't even try to keep up. Just listen to these references, okay? So the first, so Jesus refers to this concept of, of judgment or reward or final reckoning 20 to 25 times, different times in the book of Matthew. And the first, the first reference in the book of Matthew isn't actually from Jesus. It's John the Baptist. It's in chapter 3, he says, Jesus, the one who comes after him, will gather his wheat into the barn, but burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. That's in chapter 3. <clears throat> then in chapter 5, I think I'm going to need some water up here at some point. Laverne, could you help me out with that? Thank you. So chapter 5 now. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Also chapter 5. It's better to lose an eye or a hand than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Chapter 7. It's not the people who say, Lord, Lord, but the people who do the will of God that will enter into heaven. The others are told, depart from me, I never knew you. Chapter 10, he's sending out the 12. He, he's telling them to be bold. He, te- he tells them, don't be afraid of those who can only kill your body. Instead, fear him who is able to destroy body and soul in hell. But he also tells them, your very hair, the very hairs of your head are numbered. And so... God, there's, a, there's a way in which God is the most fearsome and the most trustworthy person you will ever deal with. Chapter 12, it's a warning. You're going to give an account on the day of judgment for what you say. By your words, you'll be justified or condemned. Chapter 13, it's the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus says the wicked will end in a furnace of fire, but the right, thank you. But the righteous will shine forth as the sun. And he tells the parable of the dragnet also, which has the same message. Okay, chapter 16. What good does it do to gain the whole world but lose your soul? The Son of Man will come and reward each one according to his works. Chapter 18. Woe to those who offend. It's better to enter life lame than to be cast into everlasting fire. And then he also tells the parable of the unforgiving servant who is delivered to the torturers. Chapter 22, it's the parable of the wedding feast. The one who had no garment was cast in outer darkness. Chapter 24, okay, so here are prophecies about the destruction of the temple and the end of time and kind of complicated and I can't sort it all out. But he does say we need to watch and be ready And he talks about the faithful servant who is blessed when his master comes, but an evil servant who has beaten his fellow servants joins those who are weeping and gnashing their teeth. That was chapter 24. Chapter 25, wise and foolish virgins, those who weren't ready were told, I don't know you. And then you've got the parable of the talents also in chapter 25. Profitable servants are rewarded. The unprofitable one is cast into outer darkness. Also, chapter 25, the sheep separated from the goats. Some are told, come, you blessed, inherit the kingdom prepared for you. And others are told, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire. And the last reference is in chapter 26. 
where Jesus told the high priest that someday the high priest will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus often talked about this concept of the day of reckoning. And, and he didn't just preach, this wasn't just preaching to the unbelievers. This was also to his disciples. Maybe most of it was to his disciples. It was an important part of his teaching program. And then you see, even in the, in the book of Revelation, the letters to the seven churches, each of them contains this theme. Paul also talks about this. I'm not going to give you a complete tour of his writings. Don't worry. But I'll give you some examples. In Romans 2, God will render to each one according to his deeds eternal life or tribulation and anguish. Romans 14, each of us shall give an account of himself to God. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about the day where each one's work becomes clear. If anyone's work endures, he will receive a reward. In 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about the imperishable crown that he is running for. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die because there's not going to be any consequences. But since that's not true, there is a resurrection. We must be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Timothy 2, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. 2 Timothy 4, this could be your testimony. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. So, that was a lot. But I am trying to demonstrate something, that this concept gets a lot of attention Central, a major component of Jesus' teaching, and I think it was a, a major part of Paul's outlook on life. And I'm not planning on preaching a bunch of hellfire sermons here at Bethel, and then having us sing just as I am at the end, or start a Bethel scare mare. But I do want us to be able to say, um, we need to watch and be ready, because this is real and it's coming. Now let's turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. This chapter starts off by telling us about the scoffers who say there's not going to be a judgment day. He's not coming back. We're not scoffers. But even to us, the, it's hard for this day of judgment um, to feel real to us because it's never happened before. But even though it doesn't feel real and it's a little hard to imagine, it is coming. I'll give you an analogy. Back in the early 1990s, remember some people talking about the year 2000. Imagine leaving the 1990s behind. That blew my mind. The 1990s were a big part of my life. It, it had been 19-something for a long time. It had been one something even longer. And I did the math and realized, the year 2000, I'm going to be 17 years old. That blew my mind too. I'm going to have my driver's license. 
So what happened? It was hard for me to imagine what that was going to be like. Hard to imagine crossing, leaving that millennium and entering a new one. Well, the years passed, and whether it was hard to imagine or not, it came anyway. And I, I remember exactly where I was when, when we crossed over to the year 2000. It was a, a youth event at Jerry's. Pretty sure Jerry's house. Do you remember this? Yeah. So um, this is where Lowell's lived now. And we were there. And as the clock counted down to zero, I remember playing a game of chess. And I can't remember if I won or not. I wish I could remember that. At least I could remember. I wish I could remember if I had won. But suddenly it was the year 2000. It came, whether I was ready for it or not. And here's the thing. Now the 1990s feel fuzzy, right? They feel like less real than the 2000s do. Living in 2024 is what feels real. Uh, The point is that, um, you know, at one point the 1990s felt more real to me now than the 2000s did. Now it's the other way around. Right now, this life feels more real to us than the other side, but sometime it's going to be the other way around. Whether we get there by dying or through the return of the Lord, it's coming just as certainly as the year 2000 came. The the huge difference is, obviously, we don't know how much time is left for us to get ready. Okay, that was a preface to what I'm about ready to read here. Verse 10, 2 Peter chapter 3, I'll read verse 10 through 18. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which... The heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to make much commentary on these verses, but there's a key word here in these verses that's used three times. And if you look hard, you'll see that it's the word look. Verse 12 says, Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord, And verse 13, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth. And verse 14, looking forward to these things. So what do you think? Do we look forward to these things? 
do we make forward-looking decisions? Is it part of our outlook? Does it affect the choices we make? Uh, do we talk about these things? Now, it's okay to look forward to what God has in store for us, and I don't think it means we have selfish motives. Uh, the, the faithful people in Hebrews 11 uh, were looking forward to a heavenly country, and as pilgrims, it's an important part of our outlook on life. It's what makes us pilgrims. And, and um, so God didn't save us just so we could go to heaven. That, that was not, I'm going to always say that. That's absolutely true. He didn't save us just so we could go to heaven, but it is an important part of the story of salvation that, that uh, he died for us, that we would not perish, but redeemed us so that we could someday live with him where righteousness dwells. And Peter says here in verse 14, looking forward to these things, be diligent. So this, this reality of the coming day of the Lord and, and what God has in store for us should motivate us to be diligent. To the uh, church of Smyrna, that's in Revelation, where Jesus had this message for that church. It was the one church Jesus only had good things to say about, I think. He said, be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. And I'm sure that was a huge encouragement to them. Help them be diligent. And we, we need similar reminders. Okay, so I want to talk about our value system and a, a judgment-ready value system. I'm going to read these verses from 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, and thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. On the day of judgment, everybody's going to know what really matters. People are going to have great values on the day of judgment. Maybe not really, but they're going to understand what really matters. And if your value system undergoes a huge change on the day of judgment, that would really not be a good thing. You don't want to cross the finish line and say, wait, this was a race? I thought this was a warm-up. Or... If I'd known I was being timed, I would have run that last mile instead of walked, and I definitely wouldn't have stopped for donuts. But right now, you're still running. So what matters and what doesn't? And I'm going to talk about three different categories here. So the first category of things that don't matter, and actually was a little bit of a struggle to come up with things that just don't matter. But here's one of them. And uh, the type of thing that I have to talk about here is going to sound familiar to the youth, and I'm, I'm sorry. I had a lot to say about this a few months ago to them. Um, but what doesn't matter, it's the things we do to impress people 
instead of God. Being a little better than others at certain things, whether it's basketball or high grades or teaching Sunday school or whatever, it's totally fine to get good at these things. Do that. But don't be driven to be better than others in an, in an effort to impress people. It's not a judgment-ready sort of value system. Uh, God is not going to reward you because you were better than someone else or rebuke you because you were worse than someone else. And, and this, com- this competitive drive, um, it, it, can, it can kind of mess with us and, and make things important to us for the wrong reasons. Maybe things that should be important other, anyway, but for the wrong reasons. And this is not just, this is not just for young people. Um, I didn't mean to aim this section at the young people. This is for older people too, you know, whether it's positions or roles or speaking invitations or making money. Don't, don't uh, pursue things to impress people or to be better or ahead of others. This kind of drive doesn't make us more ready to meet God. And these things are actually potholes on the race. So the second category of things I want to talk about are things like your car, your house, your reputation, your health, your, your salary. Do these things matter? What do you think? Do they matter? It's not a trick question. So um, I'm going to say they do matter. But they fall, in, uh, they fall in this category. Here are my running shoes. I'm not a runner. But these are my running shoes. So these things matter. When you're running a race, your shoes matter all the way up to the point of the finish line. And they're important. Important part of getting there. Unless you're running barefoot. But it kind of messes up the analogy. So a bad pair of shoes or a pair of shoes that doesn't fit well or or have holes in them or... um, Maybe they're not even the right kind of shoes. Maybe they have high heels. Who knows? That is, your shoes make a difference in the race. And, and bad shoes are going to be a hindrance. So you should get, these are Sauconies. You should probably get a pair of Sauconies if you haven't tried them already. But the shoes are not the point. They're not the focus. You know, you wouldn't want to run a race looking at your shoes. You wouldn't want to stop the race because you got your shoes dirty and you'd like to clean them off so they look nice. These do need to be cleaned off, obviously. But they're not the point. Uh, they're not the trophy. So when you cross the finish line, the shoes just don't matter anymore. So, and it's easy to get our, things like our house and our vehicles, our reputation, out of the shoe category and into the trophy category. And they kind of become the end in themselves and the focus. So that's, these things matter, but they're not the trophy. They're helpful for running the race, but when the race is done, they won't matter anymore. Category three are things that do matter. And I I picked out just a few, I think we kind of know what does matter, but I picked out a few of these from 2 Peter chapter 3. So verse 18 says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. So growth matters. 
I don't know, do you feel like you're growing or not? Are you becoming more like Jesus? Are you, are you doing things that cultivate that relationship with God? So growth matters. Peter also talks about holiness in verse 14. Be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. So without spot and blameless is talking about holiness. He also says peace. Peace matters. Peace with God, peace with each other. Hebrews 12, 14 actually combines these two and says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. People matter. They need to hear the gospel. And in verse 8, Peter said, God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so we have work to do to reach the loss. And there's also work to do inside the church. Uh, if you remember the, the account of the sheep and the goats, they were separated based on who took care of Jesus' brethren, the least of these, my brethren. People matter. And I think probably our biggest regrets on the day of judgment are going to involve people and relationships. So, in conclusion, each of us has a limited amount of time to be prepared. My grandpa died about 40 days after that sermon. God called him home. Psalm 139 talks about the days fashioned for me. So you have days God has fashioned for you. You have enough time to do God's will for your life, but only enough and not too much time. How are you going to use these days? I don't think you, we need to wake up every morning and, and say, you know, this could be the last day of my life, or this could be the day that Jesus returns. I don't think we... I mean, it might be a good exercise, actually, but I don't think, I'm not asking us to do that. Uh, I, I just want us to take a step back and say, uh, this is really important. A very important day is coming, the day we, when each of us will give an account. And it makes every day between now and then important. We don't need to be terrified or frantic, uh, not if we're believers. We're supposed to be experiencing Peace and joy, Jesus said, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. But we should also be sober and diligent and ask ourselves, is there anything I'm doing that I'm going to regret then? Am I investing in things that really matter? Am I becoming more like Jesus? God bless you.